This is the Suburban Folk Podcast, Episode 5, Triathlon Training with Katie Malone of Malone Coaching. I'm looking forward to having some real talk with some real folks. Hey, this is Greg with the Suburban Folk Podcast. Today's guest is Katie Malone, owner of Malone Coaching based in South Carolina. They specialize in bringing beginners into the world of triathlons, as well as coaching clients for the Ironman distance race. Katie herself has completed 30 Ironmans to date, and we talked about the equipment and training that go into a triathlon. For anybody that has any interest in competing in a triathlon, you're going to learn a lot from this podcast. I know I did. Okay, today I have Katie Malone here with me, and she owns her own triathlon training company. Katie, thanks so much for taking some time to join us on the show. Thanks for having me. So a little bit of background of why I'm really excited to have you. In the last couple of episodes, we were talking about my Disney World vacation, and we did this like all-you-can-eat type of package, which you know is essentially, if you've ever gone on a cruise or anything like that, you just have no uh, stopping point. And of course, on a vacation like that, it's hard to get in. Uh, any kind of exercise. And the triathlon world is definitely something that I've always really been interested in getting more information on. I personally am a, a runner by background, but, you know, been sort of intimidated by the swimming portion and by the um, uh, biking portion, which I think we'll get into quite a bit uh, today. So so I'll be really interested in your thoughts and if that's similar to maybe other people that, that you see. So, um, can you talk a little bit about your background uh, in particular? How did you get into triathlons, let's say, from what you may have done growing up, um, maybe like, let's say, high school sports? Uh, and then and then when did triathlons become something that, that you really focused on? Um, so basically, uh, triathlon has been something that I really – always wanted to do from the time I was about six or seven years old. And I saw the Hawaii Ironman on TV. So everything that I did in high school, in college, and in my life was always kind of leading me up to my Ironman. Uh, my parents both biked. Um, they would do 100-mile rides on the weekends. So I started riding with them when I was 10 or 11. And then um, my mother started running when I was in high school and she was always beating me. So that was very motivational because <laughs> I did not like that. Um, so, you know, like I started running in high school cause I was like, well, you've got to be able to run. Um, I would mm -hmm. swim around the lake, but I did not swim well. Um, mm -hmm. so I would, I would struggle a lot with that, but I actually did my first triathlons when I was in high school. And uh, real quick on the swimming, cause that's something I'm really curious about. So was your first introduction, if you will, to swimming already like in a lake, let's say versus doing laps in a pool? Absolutely. Um, we lived in a very rural area and, uh, my parents were not going to be driving me all over creation to go to swim meets the way parents do these days. So I swam in the lake. I had no formal instruction. I was, I wasn't going to drown, but what I was doing was completely incorrect. Um, really, I was not efficient in any way, shape or form. So, um, I really, I, I got thrown into the lake at an early age and I had no fear. So that was all I had going for me. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll be curious of, you know, again, the transition from pool to lake. So it's probably, especially in the triathlon world, good that you just started there. So you didn't know any different, let's say, because I imagine there is some amount of transition for people that have only done, let's say like swim team or, or just laps in a pool to keep in shape and then getting used to those open water swims. So that, that's sort of an interesting place to be. I feel like it probably 
probably was less of a transition at that point. And so you were doing triathlons, you said, in high school. What, what were the distances? Um, back then, it was really hard to find any triathlons. So the distances were usually, it was about a mile swim, anywhere from 20 to 30 miles biking and a 10K or six mile run. Okay. And is this, so 20 to 30 miles, is that, that's somewhere between a sprint and let's say Olympic distance, right? Is that, that am I about more, on there? Yeah, that would be more in line with an Olympic distance or international as they're also called. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, and then what other types of activities were you doing at the time? I think, for example, I had read in your bio that you did soccer in high school. I think uh, you mentioned track. Um, were there other uh, activities that you were doing that sort of contributed to your interest in triathlons. So again, obviously you were doing it all at the same time. Um, did you have, was that still sort of your number one focus, even though you were doing other activities? Um, I grew up riding horses. That's really what I started doing and continued doing all through high school. But I also water skied competitively. I started that in high school. Um, I, I really was working on being a very well-rounded athlete in mm -hmm. high school. Um, my parents believed I should try everything, even if I wasn't really good at it, that I should go ahead and, you know, go for it, try things, have fun. Um, so my high school athletic career was really focused more on having fun and enjoying the journey. Um, my parents never really pushed me being super competitive. Cool. And you mentioned that how popular or let's say not popular triathlons were. And I know again with, with the title of this podcast being suburban folk, and I definitely feel like it has gained significantly in popularity, especially, you know, for us sort of out in the suburbs. Have you noticed from your early on from, from being in triathlons to let's say now, especially with, again, you mentioned the Ironman. I think that's really my first introduction to seeing, you know, the, the Hawaii race on TV as well. Um, what has been your experience with the seemingly rise in popularity of people participating in triathlons? Well, oh, it's grown tremendously. Um, I mean, back then, which you have to remember for me, when I did my first, I was 14. So that was actually 31 years ago. Um, that mm. was a long time ago. Um, yeah, I know. It, it kind of hurts to say that now. <laughs> I was saying, you know, it's relative. <laughs> it, it, it is. But... Um, I was lucky to be able to do maybe two triathlons just to find them geographically close enough to where I live. But now we have complete like a series in South Carolina where I live. We can race at least once or twice a month. Um, you can race for year end prizes. I mean, we have a huge community of triathletes who've been racing for years. Um, the growth, I mean, it's probably tripled since I started. For a typical race, how many people, and I'll, from my standpoint, you know, when you talk about like just running races, right, there, there's some massive ones. I mean, even when you do a marathon, right, you've got people with you the whole way. I'm guessing just based on the way a triathlon is set up, it's probably not as many participants. So w what is sort of the, the normal or, or typical number of participants in any given race? So for the races that we do in South Carolina, where we have a series, mm -hmm you're looking at anywhere from 150 participants to maybe as much as 500. Um, when you get into the Ironman distance, also the half Ironman distance, which is now called Ironman 70.3, because that's mm -hmm. Ironman's 140.6 miles. So they kind of distinguish the names like that. When you get into those races, you can be racing with as many as 3,000 other athletes. 
Okay. And I, I will admit that the reason that's always top of mind for me, I've done one dual athlon, uh, which was minus the swimming. And it was very different for me to have so many less folks, like I said, than just a, a running race where there's people with you all the time. And granted, you know, I think you probably agree that you're, you're only racing against yourself, let's say, as far as uh, personal record times, things like that. But uh, I do have a, sort of a fear of ending dead last. <laughs> so I think of in the triathlon world, it's like, oh man, there are, you know, again, less people. So it's quite possible, you know, that, that I would end up dead last in a particular, particular race. I have um, been last in a race before. And, and, um, and it, well, how, how did that stack up to your overall performance? Let's say up to that point. Cause that's, I guess the way to measure it. Right. Um, you mean when I was last, right. Um, I basically accidentally got into a race that was only for professionals. And this was oh. before I knew what I was doing and I was in Europe and they assumed I had come mm -hmm. all the way there for their triathlon. And, uh, when I, went to line up, I realized I was standing on the line with Olympians oh, and, man. uh, this was not going to end well. And <laughs> it, it really, uh, it was, you know, it was quite an experience and it was, it was good for me because, um, I just had to push myself for my personal best, like you said. Mm -hmm. And, um, the Germans, they were not terribly kind about me being last and the newspaper wrote that I should stick to running is, is was their final commentary on my performance <laughs> um, because I ran very well. But mm -hmm. at that point, I was no longer really in the game. So I had my own motorcycle escort and I just kept telling myself in my mind, it's like I'm first. I'm out here all by myself. Um, so it was, an, <laughs> it was an interesting experience, but um, it was good for me because I think everybody Everybody needs to have that experience, especially as a coach. Um, I have a much better understanding for how people feel. Yeah, that that was um, exactly what I was going to ask. I assume with that experience and, you know, depending on what the barrier to entry is for people new to triathlons, you can use that feeling, let's say, to, to know what it's like, you know, from the intimidation standpoint of, again, just doing something like that for the first time. For sure. And you mentioned the community. Now, <laughs> that would probably be an example where it maybe wasn't the most welcoming community because, like you said, those are professionals, Olympians even. Um, yes. <laughs> talk about the, the community uh, – for just the, the greater public, uh, you mentioned in South Carolina sounds like is just continues to grow. I know that in my head, sort of not being part of that community, you know, there's always the jokes about, um, the, the CrossFit folks, right? Like the, oh, the, yeah. they're so sort of together and that kind of thing. Let's use that as a comparison. Um, is it similar as far as the camaraderie is concerned and, and what does that community look like? For sure. Um, in South Carolina, because we have this series of races, you tend to come together every few weeks with the same group of people who are from all over the state. So you get to know each other. You get to know each other's families. You get to know, um, you know, when, when people get pregnant and then have kids and then they start bringing their kids to the races, um, you know, it just becomes like this huge community and it's wonderful because I've made so many friends over the years um, with people who I never would have met otherwise. Um, but, you know, when you're out there racing, you cheer for each other, you encourage each other. Um, it just, it makes it 
a much better overall experience when you've got that kind of camaraderie out there. Yeah, I would imagine. And I assume even from a training standpoint, is it typically groups of folks that train together, at least when they can? Obviously, time schedules won't always um, allow for that. And is that, that something that you try to uh, put together for, for the people that you're coaching, that, that there's, um, you know, again, sort of a, at least a group of folks that are able to train together? Groups definitely make it more fun. Um, it's very difficult because of people's schedules these days. Mm-hmm. Most triathletes, I'm not going to say all, but most um, have high, uh, high-level high jobs, doctors, lawyers, professionals, um, and then they have kids and their kids have activities. So usually mm-hmm. when I'm trying to plan somebody's training, my main goal is to plan around their life. If we can fit some group workouts into that, I always try to. Um, on the weekends, mm-hmm. a lot of times you'll see bigger groups going out for rides. Um, sometimes I put on training camps. I have standard uh, open water swims that I do for my athletes, usually every other Monday. And all of those are very popular. Yeah, and I would think that would make sense. Again, like for me in the running world, like sort of the saturday sunday morning runs and stuff like that and then maybe everybody goes and grabs coffee and stuff like that and i know i really Mm -hmm. enjoy that as just a way to (laughs) break up the monotony of doing it all by yourself let's say and so you mentioned the different lengths and we just mentioned the time commitment and and of course people have crazy schedules nowadays what are those race lengths sort of from shortest to longest so Races come in all different lengths these days, but the standard really is you're going to have something called a sprint, and that's going to have a really short swim. That's where I recommend that everybody start with that, Um, and a lot of times they're held in a pool, so, you know, a little bit less intimidating, anywhere from 250 to 800 meters of swimming. Then you're going to bike maybe anywhere from 10 to 18 miles in a sprint, and then the run is traditionally a 5k or three miles. After that, you have the Olympic or international distance. Um, mm-hmm. That's usually about a mile swim, about a 24 mile bike, and then a 10k or six mile run after that. And so if you'll notice, these all kind of double in distance. So you have the mm-hmm. sprint, the Olympic, then you have the half Ironman, which is 1.2 miles, Um, 56-mile bike and a 13-mile run. And then you bump up to Ironman, which is a 2.4-mile swim, 112-mile bike, and a 26-mile run or 26.2. It's a marathon. Yeah, the full thing. And like you mentioned, again, I'm taking everything from a runner's standpoint that just on the running part is that sort of doubling, whether it goes to the 5K to the 10K to the – Half exactly. marathon to the marathon. So that that's sort of in line, I think, with anybody that's done any of those types of races of what you can can get to. Do you recommend for a new person to definitely you know, focus on a sprint, let's say, first, get that under your belt and then decide on the next level? Does it make sense to say, okay, I want to do this particular race and just go for it? What does that look like for somebody that's brand new to the sport? With triathlon, you usually have people come into the sport with maybe a little bit of a history in one of the sports. So it really depends on each person. If somebody comes to me and they are a really strong swimmer and maybe they've been biking and we just have to work on the running, 
they might start with something a little bit longer. But typically, I always advise people to start with the sprint because experience trumps everything. You know, mm -hmm. go to a race, kind of get a feel for the flow, for the transitions, um, because the time between your swim and your bike and your bike and your run, that's called a transition, that time mm -hmm. actually counts against your your overall time. So it's worth kind of practicing those. And a sprint is also much less expensive to start with. So that way, if you're going to make mistakes, you just are making mistakes in a short race versus a race that you spent $300 on. Yeah. Let me hit the, you mentioned the transitions and the things that I have read for triathlons confirms, like you're saying, that's a very specific focus, especially for competitive uh, triathletes. For novices do you, is there as much focus on the transition as far as just what's considered a good time or is there more focus on uh, the activity that you're working through for example i guess would you be more disappointed let's say with missing i don't know the, the time you're looking for for the swim versus getting out of the water and transitioning uh not being the time you're looking for or do they have equal weight as far as what a goal setting should be typically i don't worry too much about um specific time goals with a beginner. I focus more on process goals, like things the person should be thinking about or focused on during the race, mm -hmm. because I don't, I don't really like a time goal because that's, that's, it's too much based on performance. And a beginner is really just trying to get through the whole triathlon. They don't need to have a time goal yet. Um, because we mm -hmm. also have nothing to compare it to. So for beginners, I really recommend trying to have a super fast transition because that really takes no skill other than getting dressed and undressed quickly. That And that, I'm glad to hear you say that because that's kind of what I was thinking in my mind. And w for example, one that comes to mind is like for the bikes, which we'll get to of the clips versus clipless and, and oh, yeah. you know, then when you get off the bike and how that goes. And um, I guess foreshadowing, I'll definitely ask you the question of going back to the transition for somebody doing it the first time, like, you know, is it worth, you know, investing in the, the shoes and having the, the clipless uh, bike or not? Um, because ultimately, I assume, you know, there's there's just the fitness level of it in general. Like you said, it's sort of how quickly can you get dressed and undressed, you know, for, for certain things. So that's not necessarily a, a rating of, of overall fitness level. Um, you mentioned uh, the costs and as far as starting with the sprint, which makes a whole lot of sense. Again, I'll reference back to the fact that I'm a runner. And one of the things when you go and read for running, it's like, hey, there is nothing uh, more inexpensive as far as an activity is concerned as running because it's the shoes, you know, and right. uh, maybe some, you know, depending on what types of running shorts and stuff like that. Um, I, I think obviously when you get into the other two parts of the events for a triathlon, as well as even the cost um, of, of entry, because that you don't have as, as many people in there. So I assume that the individual cost is higher, but what are those costs associated with um, training and equipment and then ultimately uh, the race itself? Hmm, good question. Okay. Um, so we'll start kind of with the training. You need to be able to swim somewhere um, in the summer. Mm -hmm. You can either swim in a lake or a pool um, sometimes you can just swim in your community pool and be fine with that. Other times you need to join like a YMCA. So, you know, you're looking at anywhere from, I'd say $30 a month to $50 a month for, for a pool membership. Mm -hmm. And I'm just generalizing, of course. Um, then for the bike, 
uh, you know, you have to have some sort of working bike. Um, a lot of people just start out on whatever they've got in the garage or they borrow a bike. Um, there is nothing wrong with that as long as you kind of get it fit to you. Um, you know, make sure the seat height is right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good place to start just to make sure you really like the sport before you invest in a bike. Um, anytime I talk about equipment, I'm always going to talk about investing and training. Again, it's investing in yourself. Um, we Americans are great consumers. We love to spend money. You are going to spend that money, your disposable income on something. At least when you're doing triathlon, you're spending it on something that's good for you. Um, that's healthy and it's going to be a positive in your life. Um, so I always try to remind people like really look at it as an investment. Um, so anyway, back to the bike, you need the, the bike you can borrow. You can start just wearing your running shoes. Usually I recommend using trail shoes because they have a harder sole. Um, and that way your foot won't hurt on the pedal. Ideally you are going to eventually work into actual bike shoes and pedals that clip onto your bike shoe. Right there to start out, you're looking at about $100 for the shoes, and the pedals are usually about the beginner pedals. They're another $100. So that right there is an investment, but pedals and the shoes can go to your newer bike when you get a new bike. They transfer over. So it's not a cost that you're going to re-incur anytime soon. Um, And then running... Oh, and good bike shorts. That's the other thing on the bike. You, you want to have good bike shorts. And uh, and this might be my hot tip for the day. When you are riding your bike in bike shorts, you do not wear your underwear under them. Because that will shave <laughs> you. And a lot of people get really embarrassed when I tell them that. But, you know, no undies under your bike shorts. And don't share your bike shorts either. That is a – yeah, that is a really good tip. Um I'm, I'm happy to say I knew that one. <laughs> and I, Good. Uh, w- one other clarification though for the bike shorts is my understanding is there are the standard bike shorts, which have, I don't know what the pads made up, but a thicker pad, let's say if you're just biking versus there's also something called tri shorts, right? That is more like a gel that still has the padding, but it's not as thick so that when you get off the bike and you go run, um, you know, it's, it's not as much in the way kind of, I assume back to the, the chafing and that kind of thing. Is that, uh, is that true? I guess is my first question. And then is that what people should be looking for specifically for triathlons, like the tri shorts versus the biking shorts? So for training, um, a lot of times I like to train in bike shorts because they have a little bit more padding. Um, mm-hmm. but you never want to actually swim or run in bike shorts because bike shorts, the pad is a lot thicker and it's kind of like running in a wet diaper, Um, not pleasant. Um, it's going to sag down between your legs because it's so heavy. Just imagine a toddler, you know, with a a wet diaper on, and that's kind of what bike shorts are like. The tri shorts have a very thin, um, layer of cushioning in them. Um, honestly, it's kind of like having nothing, uh, but they don't sag down. They don't have a seam that goes you know, along any sensitive areas for men or women. Um, that's kind of where the big, the big plus is with bike shorts or tri shorts. There's no seam that's going to rub you. Hopefully that makes sense. And, and you confirmed what I was thinking that I've heard one of those primary differences is don't go swimming. Like you said, with the bike shorts, cause it's just going to suck up the water. And, uh, that's, that's not going to work so well when you, uh, go on to the, to the different parts of the race. On I see it in day. every race. 
every really? race I see somebody running and running in a pair of wet bike shorts and they're sagging down and I'm like, oh, my heart just goes out to them. But uh, I, I'm sure they've learned <laughs> after their first race. They're like, I'm never doing that again. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> going backwards to the the time commitments, and again, like I said, we know people are very, very busy. Um, kind of going with those same lengths of races that we talked about, can you give a high level of what the time commitment is at each of those levels um, from a day-over-day -day, uh, activity standpoint? Okay, this is really general. But we'll just say for a sprint triathlon, I would say you need to dedicate five to six hours a week of actual training. And when I talk about actual training, that's time in the pool, time running, or time biking. So say five to six hours. That's just for a beginner. Um, mm -hmm. for, the, for the Olympic distance, you know, you're looking at maybe seven to eight hours. Ideally, you're getting a little bit faster so you can do a little bit more distance within that time. Um, for a beginner, if they were doing uh, an Olympic distance, you know, they might need more like 10 hours a week just because they're not as fast. Um, mm -hmm. Then once you get up into the half Ironman, that's where you start getting into longer distances on the bike, which is very time consuming. Um, you can spend anywhere, I'd say on average on the weekend, two and a half to five hours biking uh, to prepare for a half Ironman um, and then running you're going to spend, you know, you're going to run anywhere from an eight mile run to a 15 or 16 mile run on the weekends, getting ready for a half Ironman. So you're looking at, you know, depending the level again, anywhere from 10 to 13 or 14 hours to prepare well for a half Ironman. Sure, you can do it on less, um, but, you know, I'm just giving you averages. Mm -hmm. Ironman training, you're looking at anywhere from 12 to 20 hours a week, depending on the performance level that you're looking for. And for let's focus on the Ironman a little bit, because I'm sure I speak for the general public when I say that's the one that people see that distance and say, oh, my gosh, how in the world could I possibly do that? Um, it, it, day over day, is that spread out? relatively evenly day over day or what does the obviously i'm sure the recovery period is almost as much of a uh consideration as just getting the workouts in and getting the training in what is like you said generally speaking everybody's different but what does that interval look like as far as day on day off i imagine even for ironmans there's probably even the consideration of two a days right yes definitely um and again it depends on what level you want to perform um, not everybody is out there to try to snag a Kona slot. Um, but if you are, you're going to be doing two workouts on most, probably five days a week. You're going to have two workouts a day. Um, you are going to be a weekend warrior if you, uh, mm -hmm. you know, if you work during the week. And that means Saturdays are going to be pretty much committed to biking anywhere from, uh, three and a half to eight hours on the bike actually biking. Um, then, and it's not every weekend, you know, you can break it up. It, it just depends on the person and what they have going on in their lives. Then, um, on Sundays, you're going to have your long run and that's going to be anywhere from, you know, 10 to 20 to 22 miles. And it, again, it's not every weekend, you know, you, you build into it, but weekends are big, big training slots. 
yeah, I would imagine just like you said, for most folks that are working, that that's when they would presumably have the most time to uh, to get it in. And then I imagine on the weekdays, it's uh, early to rise to get the workout in. And then if you are trying to get get it in afterwards, you as soon as you're done with work, you're probably getting that in. So I'd imagine uh, for those that are in that situation, that's you probably don't have a whole lot of time for any other extracurriculars. It's it's uh, definitely the commitment for for the period of time. And what is I know I'm focusing on the Ironman again. That's sort of the extreme version, obviously. But um, what is the typical uh, period of time? So do you need to be ramping up, let's say, for nine months before the race, six months before the race? Obviously, it depends where you're starting at. Um, but it, but is there sort of a, an average window of start to when you would actually be prepared to finish something like that? It really depends on your level of fitness going into it. But typically for my coaching, I always recommend that people um, do at least six months of coaching with me. Like if they're trying to get performance gains, um, because I always feel like we need a month to kind of settle in and understand what we're doing. And then Mm -hmm. we have four months of really intense training. And then one month, you know, the last month you're kind of backing off, kind of just absorbing all that training because you don't want to go into the race with any fatigue. Um, and so that's always kind of tricky. Some people it takes, um, you know, they recover in a week. Some people recover in 10 days. Some people need three weeks of really backing off the distances in order to feel good by race day. Um, so that, you know, I always kind of look at those middle four months as, as the meat of their training. For people who have um, kids uh, who have a lot of activities or for people who travel a lot and might not be able to work out every weekend, then we're looking at more like six to eight months because that way we can have more space in between workouts. We can allow for more recovery, um, but you still get the same training gains. So it, it's, you know, every athlete I work with is different, but um, there's always where there's a will, there's a way. And I help them figure out what's going to work best for their schedule. Cause a lot of the schedules that you can purchase online, you know, it's, it's set in stone. Here's what it is. And people don't realize mm-hmm. that you can kind of think outside the box. Yeah. And I know even for the couple of, again, going back to running the couple of marathons I've done, the first one I did a complete do it myself and uh i'll just leave it at i paid a little bit for you know my lack of knowledge and then at least i got a little bit smarter for the next one but you know part of that is learning how everybody's different like you said online is just going to be um here's the prescription and you know good luck (laughs) let's say without tailoring it to exactly exactly and really you know what i always tell people that i offer is i kind of cut the learning curve um you know, I'm going to take away those mistakes you would have made when by, when you're by yourself because I've seen so – it's not just what I've done. It's what I've seen others do. And so I kind of know, like, areas that will get you in trouble. And so I can kind of steer people away from those. Um, I can also usually sense when somebody's overtraining just by their mood, um, heart rate variations and that sort of thing. I just kind of pay attention to that and say, hey, you know what? I know you think you're feeling great, but you're really mm-hmm. tired. You need a rest. Um, and then we adjust the training accordingly. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And then one last question on, again, the, the distance considerations. This is top of mind for me. I happened to read an article talking about, again, the time commitment for the Ironman. And this article was saying um, the half is you know significantly more doable um, it, it just, again, from what the overall time commitment is. And I forget what it said for the training 
um, overall time. But at any rate, does that seem about right? Let's say for, I don't know, X percentage of folks, maybe the, the half might be the place to look at again, depending on, on what amount of time they have. Um, and, and again, assuming they want to do triathlons in general, um, what do you think, is there an ideal sort of race level once you figure out that you actually like doing them? <laughs> uh, right. Um, I think, the half Ironman is really gaining in popularity right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how long ago. It's maybe, gosh, 10 years. They kind of instated uh, the world championships for the half Ironman distance. And that goes to a different city, different country every year. Um, this year it was in Nice, France. Um, next year, I believe it's in New Zealand. Um, so what it's, and the year before it was in South Africa. So wow. people are kind of getting on board with this half Ironman, uh, world championships and trying to qualify, which is making it a little bit more competitive, a little bit more fun because you've really got like a reward, like, oh, I get to go to this foreign exotic country to do my, you know, my world championship race. Um, I think that also the distance is a little bit easier to train for. It's, it's not quite as hard on your body. Um, I know for next year, I'm probably only going to do a half Ironman and not an Ironman. Don't hold me to that, but, uh, that's kind of my plan right now, just because of the time commitment. Mm -hmm. Um, it's hard when I'm out on the bike all day, um, one day a week, uh, have a six year old. So I have to make sure that I make my training work around my life. And, uh, so I'm, I'm thinking next year, I'm like, yeah, I think I might just do the half Ironman. It's a nice distance. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that, that, that is good to know. Again, for, I have small kids and I think, uh, most folks that are listening to this probably are in that same situation. So that's a good consideration. Now I will say that, um, Allison, the person that, you know, referenced me over to you when she was doing her Ironman, uh, she was in town and we did a run. I know it was uh, part of what she was training for and she was giving me some of the details. Uh, I think the, how did she, the term she used was basically when the suggestion of an Ironman comes up for somebody, if they don't have sort of an immediate no, then, you know, it, it, you're in, <laughs> you know, right. I, I think she was trying to get me interested in, in the whole world of it. And I, I didn't give an immediate no. I'm like, you know, that does seem like it would be something really cool to say that I've done. So, uh, and, and I think there's a similar phrase for like a marathon. When you do a marathon, if you don't immediately say, I'm never doing that again, then you'll probably do one again. So is that, is that sort of the basis for whether or not somebody is a I'll call it candidate to, uh, to be motivated to do an Ironman. I think, um, it's the allure of seeing how far you can push your body. And while the half Ironman in general, I think seems manageable to most people, the Ironman is, it's kind of out there. Like, can I really do this? Can I finish this? And I'll never forget when I went into my first Ironman, I really questioned whether I had what it was going to take to finish that race. Um, and I mean, I had trained well, I was really in a good place to race, but you don't know that, um, ahead of time. And so it really, it pushes your mental and your physical limits. And I think that that's really what the beauty of Ironman is about is, is you just, you just don't know. And it's such a long day. So many things can happen. You're going to have your highest highs and your lowest lows all within one day. Yeah, which is, I think, intimidating for most folks. But hey, to put it in perspective for your story, and we were talking about before we recorded, uh, you went from, you know, where everybody else starts, right, of can I finish this to now completing 
about 30 uh, total yes. Ironmans. Yes. So, so, so it can be done and uh, it sounds like there's a, an, an addictive quality to it. <laughs> Maybe once the first one gets completed. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> So again, as I keep alluding to, like I said, I'm a, I'm a runner by background and sort of going through each part of the events of a triathlon um, in order. Let's start with swimming. And I, my background there is that I, if I'm thrown into a pool or the ocean, whatever, I'm not going to drown, but that's about it. Um, and I've really had to start from scratch to get any type of technique down as far as, um, you know, my stroke is concerned or, or time or anything like that, even my breathing. So I'm curious if most folks that you get that are new to this, um, what, especially for swimming, uh, their, their background is just again, from my experience, um, I did, a, I didn't do any sort of swimming sports or anything like that. And I feel like it was a specific niche group <laughs> that did. Mm -hmm. So, um, what is the, again, what is the average, we'll call it level of background for folks that you first come in contact with for swimming? Um, and then where do you go from there? So I think with swimming, um, first of all, it is my absolute favorite to coach because like I said at the beginning, I did not grow up with a swimming background. I am not just some naturally talented swimmer. I had to learn how to swim as an adult, swim correctly as an adult. So when I decided that I was going to qualify for the Hawaii Ironman, which is the world championships, um, I hired my first coach and he looked at me swimming and he said, get out of the pool. Um, and I was like, wow, I'm that good. <laughs> and I, he said, you are a mess. We have to start over. And so at that point, um, and I was probably 27 at that point, um, I got out of the pool and I completely changed my stroke. I had to start with all of these fundamental drills that the little swim team kids were doing. Um, it, it took a lot of effort on my part to learn how to swim correctly. But it also taught me um, a lot about body awareness in the water. Most people have no idea what their arms are doing, what their head is doing, what their body is doing in regards to their head, where their arms are, when they should be breathing. And so when I teach, I really break it all down. And most good swim coaches are capable of doing that as well. And that's why I always tell people, I'm like, go get help. Go to somebody who comes recommended as a good swim coach. Let them look at you and let them tell you where to begin. Well, that's encouraging for me because I'm definitely one of those that probably people would say is just flailing in the water. <laughs> um, so it's we, technique. It's all technique. And technique can be learned. Um, and then once you have the technique down, then you can really work on the fitness and the skills. And the biggest thing with swimming, you know, you said you have trouble with your breathing. Well, of course you do, because when you're swimming, you can't just breathe when you need to. You have to breathe in sync. It's like you're doing a little dance in the water. And until you've got that dance fine-tuned, it's not going to feel comfortable. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And uh, yeah, especially for, well, biking or running anything that's not in the water you you don't have that right. consideration so i've i've definitely found that for sure um we we hit equipment again in the overview and i would assume that 
uh, well, let's say for guys, uh, should should guys just go ahead and get jammers or uh, some version of speedo rather than let's say jumping in the pool in swim trunks? Well, um, I do joke with people that, you know, when I'm getting ready to give swim lessons, I'm like, you know, they're like, what do I need to wear? And I'm like, look, if you're a man, I don't want to see you in a Speedo today. Um, but, <laughs> uh, you know, jammers, they're basically, they look like tight bike shorts. Um, those are nice just because they keep everything in place and nothing's going to be where it doesn't belong. Um, so I think those are a good option. But honestly, to start out, you could just wear your swim shorts it's, it's really not a big deal to start with. When you get more advanced, sure, you can go pick up a pair of Speedos or some Jammers, but um, you, you really don't need them to start with. And how about goggles? Uh, do you have, not that you necessarily need to plug a specific brand or anything, but if, if you do have one that's your go-to, um, feel free to mention that. But any considerations for goggles? Yes, um, for sure. And I don't get any sponsorships or anything from goggles. I'm just going to tell you the ones I like. Um, mm -hmm. Aquasphere makes goggles. They look a little bit more like almost diving goggles. They're a little bit more comfortable to start in. They're not quite as trendy with the swimmers, but you see a lot of triathletes wearing them. They're just comfortable. Don't leave them in your hot car because they will melt and then they mm -hmm. won't stick to your face anymore. Um, especially in South Carolina, that's a problem. Uh, the other goggles I like are the Tier. It's uh, T-Y-R. That's a pretty common brand. They've got lots of nice mm -hmm. triathlon-type triathlon goggles. Um, and you see a lot of swimmers swimming with something called Swedish goggles. And basically, it's where, like, the plastic just sticks onto your eye. Um, and they're very hard. If you get kicked with those on your face, it will cut your eye like around the socket. So I recommend staying away from anything like that when you're actually swimming in a group or in a triathlon. That's good to know. And any other equipment? I don't know if there's, I might be completely making this up, but they're like earplugs or something, depending on if somebody is prone to swimmer's ear or anything like that. Any other considerations for equipment? Yeah. I mean, earplugs, um, I used to get a lot of ear infections. So I actually always wear silicone earplugs. Um, you can get them at the at, you know, a CVS or a pharmacy. Um, they just, you know, you roll them up in a little ball and put them in your ears. And that way you're not constantly getting uh, water down your ear canal. Um, you don't necessarily have to start with those. Um, if you're swimming in cold water, having earplugs in is a huge benefit. Um, again, those silicone earplugs, they're really comfortable. They kind of mold to fit your ear so they don't hurt. Um, I like those a lot. Typically, when I start working with somebody, um, after a while, we might go to using hand paddles. Um, I like the, the tier, that TYR brand again, the Catalyst paddle. Um, but there are lots of great paddles for different styles of swimming, I guess, or depending on what you're doing wrong that you might be able to use. Um, most gyms or pools have kickboards available. Kickboard is a really good tool just to start with. So you can keep it pretty simple early on. The We touched on at the very beginning, the pool versus the open water swim. And you mentioned, of course, my other question around triathlons in particular will be the group swims and you don't want to get mm -hmm. kicked in the face, but I'm sure that's a consideration for part of it, depending on how the start is. So uh, what do you recommend as far as pool to open water um, and then also preparations 
a safety standpoint, I would imagine um, getting ready for an open water swim and then just even getting used to, for example, visibility, I'm sure is an issue uh, in the open water swim. Yes, for sure. Um, so going from the pool out into the open water, the main difference is that you don't have that wall to push off of every 45 seconds or minute and a half, however long it takes you to swim a 25 or a 50, depending on your pool length. So um, one thing I have noticed is that it, it's important to know how to tread water so that uh, if you want to take a break, you can tread water. Um, also going from the pool out into the open water, Xterra wetsuits makes these, um, things called lava pants or lava shorts. And basically what they are is they're like a pair of pants you pull on, but they give you a little bit of extra flotation. And so those are really nice, um, kind of a comfort type thing to use in the open water the first few times. Um, I have some people who have problems with their body position and they use them a lot of the time just to really get a good feel of keeping the hips higher up in the water. Um, higher hips, higher legs equals less drag. Um, so that's one thing that can help make open water a little bit more comfortable. Also, um, a lot of people have like swim buoys that they wrap around their waist and tow next to them. Those are nice because you can hang on them. You, you just blow it up and you can hang on it. Um, when you're out in the water, kind of give you a rest. Um, a lot of people think that those are super visible. And I can honestly say that from a boat, if there's any wake on the water, those little, those little swim buoys are really not all that visible. So, um, if you're on a lake where there are a lot of boats out, you want to stay close to the shore. And are you allowed to use those buoys on a race or is that just for training? You know, I feel like I heard that you are allowed to use them in a race. Um, but I haven't seen anybody using them in a race. And personally, I would not be thrilled if I were in a group where a bunch of people had those trailing off of their, uh, you know, trailing alongside of them because it just takes up extra room and you can get tangled up in it. Um, I, so maybe they're not allowed, which is why people aren't using them. But I think originally they said that they were. Um, so, you know, in a group, if you're out doing training, they're nice because that way you can get a rest. But, you know, I don't really, I think by the time you get to the race, you should be prepared to swim on your own. And one other clarification, when you mentioned treading water, which makes complete sense. Um, what about that say versus just being able to float on your back if you need uh, a break? Is there sort of a, a recommendation between the two? It's, it's whatever you're most comfortable doing. Um, treading water is going to keep your head up above the water and you're going to be able to see who's coming. Um, you know, and because if you're in a race and you're floating on your back, people are probably going to run into you or swim over you, which is just going to make you more uncomfortable. So treading water kind of allows you to be more aware of your surroundings. And then for a first race, I, I know there are sprints that are in a pool. Um, do you recommend doing those again in the way to see if it's something you're interested in at all? Or do you recommend going right to an open water swim when you're ready for to, to pick a race? Well, for most people, I'm going to recommend they start in the pool just to get some sort of 
comfort level, but also gain a little bit of confidence before they head out to the open water. Um, a lot of times the open, the pool swims are happen earlier in the season when the open water is still really cold, um, mm -hmm. cold open water for your first, uh, for your first race, it's a bad combination. Um, cold water kind of restricts your breathing, makes people panic. It's, and a lot of times you need a wetsuit or beginners might not have a wetsuit. So then they're really cold. Um, I, I definitely don't recommend cold open water swimming for beginners. Okay. Yeah. That also makes a whole lot of sense. Um, anything that is worth noting that I missed for the swim and just, you know, from, from when people first get started to getting prepared for a race? I think really going and, and finding somebody who can help you with your swim stroke, um, finding like a good coach in your area to actually put their eyes on you, um, I think is one of the most important things that people can do. Um, I know it can be hard to find somebody, but you know, these days there are a lot more triathlon coaches out there. Um, there are a lot more swimming coaches out there who give private lessons, but one private lesson will come back to you tenfold in the investment if you go to the right person. Yeah, it makes sense. I know even for, like I said, the the little bit I've been in the pool, even just a regular you know, swim coach that's part of our gym was very, very helpful, um, you know, and <laughs> identifying what I'm doing wrong, if nothing else. So I would definitely exactly. agree um, that that's really, really helpful. So, so the next leg, of course, is the bike. Um, we talked about the equipment itself. And that is a good idea. Yeah. If, if somebody, you know, has a bike that would fit you, that's a great way to cut the cost when you're figuring out what you, whether or not you want to stick with the triathlons. Um, what are the overall considerations when we say fitted for a bike? What does that mean? And then also um, what types of bikes should somebody be looking for, for a triathlon, especially for the first time? Um, I've seen people do their first triathlon on like a hybrid bike, you know, like a city bike, I guess mm -hmm. we could call it. I've seen people do them on mountain bikes with mountain bike tires or put slick tires on a mountain bike. Um, you know, road bikes, old road bikes, new road bikes, cyclocross bikes. It, it really doesn't matter for a sprint. Um, it's just that you have something that when I say fits you, I mean that the seat isn't crazy high. Um, and where you can reach the handlebars comfortably and reach the brakes and you know how to shift. Um, those things can really help you out in your first triathlon. Yeah. Uh, and that makes sense. I, I will say like, it's for the dual athlon I did again, coming up from the runner standpoint, as I see people zipping by me on these, what seem to be very expensive bikes. Uh, part of me is like, well, that's not fair. <laughs> you know, I might be putting in more effort. Um, but you know, they've got the equipment, let's say that's going to let them go faster versus yeah, like running or swimming. It's, you know, just sort of you and, <laughs> and the uh, activity that's going on. So my competitive spirit comes out from that standpoint, but again, for, for the people that that are first trying the sport that that makes sense to just get out there shifting for sure which i will say again for myself can be i think a steeper learning curve if you've been off of a bike since let's say you were a kid than you might expect as far as you know negotiating the hills and making sure you're not you know coming up a hill and filling with the shifters and you don't have a good kick you know that that kind of thing is more nuanced i think than people probably realize definitely definitely that my biggest tip on that is your right hand shifts the rear and your left hand shifts the front chain rings and gives you a lot 
of change. Left hand mm-hmm. gives you a lot of change. So if you're going up a hill or down a hill, you're probably going to need to shift with your left because you need a lot of change. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, good rule of thumb. And like I said, even for, for my bike, I took a little while to make sure I knew, like, like you said, the left versus the right. Um, and, and we, again, we hit before the clips versus clipless sounds like out of the gate, you know, like you're saying, um, probably go with the clips for the, for the first round. And then if you are going to do any additional races, probably worth the investment to get the clipless shoes, similar to what we're talking about with the shifting. My understanding is there is a bit of a different way to pedal when you get the shoes. For example, by and large, you're only, you know, really pushing off when you're pushing down on the pedal. But when you've got the clipless shoes, you're getting some extra effort when you're pulling back up because the shoes are connected to the butt. Yes, you're correct. You can actually pedal all the way around um, the pedal stroke when you're using clipless. But one thing, just because some people here might not know about clipless and clip pedals, and when we're talking about clipless pedals, this means you're actually connected to the pedal with your shoe. Mm-hmm. And and clip, old school clip, that's basically where your foot is just resting on top of the pedal. Um, and so you know, the, the clipless pedals allow you to really pedal a lot harder and and create a lot more power from your pedal stroke. Um, and then again, from the equipment standpoint, obviously, especially with bikes, there's so many different considerations. But off the top of your head, are there any certain models that you would point folks to um, if they get to the point where they're in the market to, to purchase a bike similar with the shoes, any type that you prefer or, or tell people to use? Typically with a beginner triathlete, you know, depending on their comfort level, I'm going to recommend that they start off on a road bike. Um, and usually road bikes are pretty easy to find used. Um, you know, you might need to just figure out what size you're looking for, but a road bike is a really great place to start. It's not quite of um, such an aggressive position the way a triathlon bike is. Um, so I think road bikes are typically what I'm going to direct people towards to start with. And an- another item I had as far as helmet considerations. Now, I know that, you know, you can't sell a bike helmet without a certain um, safety rating in general. Now, I assume when you get into considerations for drag and, you know, that that being a detriment to speed, there's probably a lot of different options. But again, for for beginners, is it that, hey, every helmet out there has got a, you know, minimum safety rating, so you can't go wrong with whatever you get? Or is there some other considerations that you should have even for the helmet? Um, really, for the helmet, the, the main consideration is that it fits you correctly. All helmets that you buy that are out there, you know, they have a certain rating. They're going to be up to standards when you buy it off the shelf. The biggest thing I see beginners doing is buying helmets that are too big mm-hmm. or they're not positioning on them on their head correctly. The helmet actually needs to sit across the middle of your forehead so it's covering your frontal lobe. So if you do fall off your bike onto your head, um, that you're protected. I see a lot of women with their their uh, helmets tipped way back on their head. So if they were to fall, they would actually hit their forehead. Um, so I think that that's the biggest consideration. Um, helmets do come in different sizes. They usually come in small, medium, and large. Um, so, you know, you have to make sure you're getting the right size. Even try it on before you buy it because they're not all the same size. 
Yeah, yeah, that that definitely makes sense. I would also think for keeping it down that, hey, just keeping the sun out of your eyes if it's a sunny day is another incentive to, you know, make sure that it's as low as it needs to be and that it fits correctly. So that definitely makes sense. Um, sunglasses. You got to wear sunglasses with your helmet um, because of the bugs mm-hmm. and road debris. Um, you need to protect your eyes. So sunglasses really aren't just a fashion statement on the bike. They are for your <laughs> safety. That's, that is good to know. Any, I tend to cheap out admittedly on my workout sunglasses. Do you have any recommendations for, uh, for a good brand to look for? Again, it comes down to fit. Um, Mm -hmm. I have a really narrow face, so I end up wearing kids Oakley's, um, because they fit my face really well. They're not going to fall off. I hate it if sunglasses are sliding down my nose when I'm trying to race or train. Um, but I always will will have sunglasses on my face. Okay, yeah, that that makes sense. And I, yeah, I try to do the same um, for whenever I'm out on the bike. So I'm I'm glad <laughs> that I'm doing what you're supposed to do at least for that part. Um, no pun intended. Transitioning from the bike to the run, and like I said, for for myself, that's where um, all of my fitness activity has come from. Um, but I think there's definitely a consideration from when you get off of the bike, and I don't know if rubber legs is the official term or not, but that feeling when you first get off and start your run. Um, any any tips for? sort of working through that uh, to, to get your stride better? What other considerations when you go from the, the bike to the run are there? Well, I don't know if you've ever paid much attention to your running cadence. Do you? Um, as far as like number of strokes or from what standpoint? Or, or I mean, number, like of your, steps, your gait? number of steps per minute. Have you Not ever looked really. at that? Um, I, okay. No. So for a triathlon, um, ideally on the bike, When you're racing, you can hold a cadence of close to 90. And for running to be super efficient, um, the ideal cadence is also 90. Now, this doesn't mean that you run a lot faster and, you know, take big loping strides. It actually means that you really shorten your stride. You're very collected Mm -hmm. when you're running. Um, And so basically, it's a super fast shuffle when you get off the bike because your quads are usually a little bit tired Um, you know, you've been using your hamstrings, your glutes on the bike. So if you get off and you just work on this really quick little stride, um, it will get you going. And then within a mile or two, you know, you're kind of, then you can ease back into your normal running stride, ideally still with a cadence of 90, but to start with it's super little quick steps, swinging your arms really fast to get those legs to follow, um, it makes a huge difference. So almost like, I don't know why I think with swinging the arms, I think of like power walking. So like a really sped up version to, to some extent of, of really using your arms and, and choppy. Yes. Yes. It, it, that, it does feel very okay, choppy. It doesn't feel fluid. It probably does not look very pretty either, but it's very efficient and very effective. And you can run pretty darn fast like that. Okay. Uh, that would definitely be something for me to, to practice on. Um, other things, and again, I sort of went to the running part. Anything that we didn't cover on the, the bike uh, that you think is worth noting? If you're going to buy a computer, get one that does cadence. Okay. That, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and anything else for – again, I know I'm jumping around a little bit between the two. Oh, you're fine. But um, for running, I'll say for myself, uh, I, I sort of do what's natural um, 
I I know that people that I see that first get out into it is they'll, they'll clench their hands. And I always tell them like, Hey, stay loose, especially with, with your upper body. Cause that's gonna, you know, tire you out more than you realize. Uh, and obviously, you know, don't go at too fast of a pace. There's the suggestion of if you can't talk comfortably while you're running, um, then you're probably going too fast. Um, it, one that I was curious if, if you have a recommendation on, or if, if something you've heard of is the concept of coming down on uh, your heel versus on your, your toes, uh, or staying up on the balls of your feet. Um, I definitely do the heels, which is, you know, it cannot definitely be harder on your joints, I know. Um, but, you know, anytime I try to sort of stay up on my toes, it doesn't last very long. So is there a different consideration for triathlon running? And you can definitely tell me I'm just doing it all wrong. I won't be offended at all. Or any other considerations for uh, running without hurting yourself, again, especially from joints, because you always hear that for running, I feel like. So again, um, you know, if I see somebody running and landing on their heel, it's not so much a product of where you're landing on your foot, but where is your body in regard to your feet? Like, are you kind of back behind your feet or are you landing over your feet? Ideally, you've got your whole body kind of stacked um, so that you're not leaning back and having that foot way out in front of you, but you're also not like bending over at the waist and falling forward. You want to be standing up nice and tall. You want to be taking a little bit shorter stride so that you can allow that foot to land more underneath your knee, directly underneath your knee to absorb some of the impact with your knee versus basically putting on the brakes with every single stride and over striding a little bit and landing on your heel, which is going to send the impact directly up into your knee and then into your hip. Um, it just doesn't allow for real efficient running. And chances are, if you're doing that, if you start looking at what your actual cadence is while you're running, you're going to find that your cadence is probably a little low. So shortening your cadence up might really be able to help you um, be more efficient and avoid injury. You know, it's not just about what you're doing at the moment. It's about what are you doing long term? Yeah, for sure. And again, for myself, why I am interested in the triathlon world is because I've definitely gone through, you know, the, the knee aches, the actually I'm sort of going through what I think is plantar fasciitis right now. <laughs> um, mm. and, and, you know, some of the wear and tear that can come with running. And so at least, you know, mixing it up with the biking and swimming um, can, you know, limit at least the the impact that you have that that you know is sort of more typical with the running world um for sure for sure but also like with your run um if you stand still and you march like with your legs the way your foot hits the ground when you're marching is really almost the ideal foot strike when you're running that toe like if i'm looking at you running towards me your toe should never be up i should never be able to see the bottom of your shoe when I'm standing in front of you. Does that make sense? Uh, it does. And that's interesting. Cause that's what I'm probably guilty of. I'm sort of thinking of my run races and yeah, I bet I probably could see the bottom of my shoe and sort of the mid stride. So um, you pick up the knee and let the foot drop to the ground. The foot is really just dropping to the ground. Ideal foot strike. I wouldn't really say is on the toe. It's almost a, a, a flat neutral strike on the ground. But again, it's not so much about just where your foot's touching the ground. It's what the body over your feet are doing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like your body position. Um, just things to look at. And if you ever run on yeah. a treadmill, watch yourself in the mirror. 
Watch your shadow when you're running. Where is your body? Are your legs out in front of you? Is your body behind? Just things to think about. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's all really good considerations. Um, and again, to help, if nothing else, I think prevent some injuries. And I will even say again, as we go through sort of equipment and stuff like that, um, I have definitely gone the gamut of a wearing shoes for too long <laughs> to where they're not providing the right amount of support and B just, you know, getting basic, let's say department store shoes <laughs> that, that don't necessarily have the support that I need for the way that I run. So I would encourage folks, um, to you know don't don't skimp out too much it goes back to what you said in in the beginning of hey you're spending money on yourself so in the the consumer world that we live in yeah yeah for sure and um you know not to get into the healthcare world too much but the the prevention you know is is key and will save you heartache down the road so i would definitely encourage folks that are new to running to um have those considerations and like i said don't just you know necessarily buy something off the rack because uh you could quite literally pay for it later (laughs) in in the form of of injuries um anything else again for running and we talked a little bit before recording about your considerations for nutrition sort of again that that rest period when you're not doing training so i thought maybe we would hit that for a little bit um before we before we end our episode here oh i think that's everything on running but but again with running you know if you feel like you're having trouble find a good running coach and let them actually put their eyes on you um have them do a video of you and you know, point out and do it in slow motion and point out what you're doing. It's amazing what a slow motion video will reveal. Very, yeah, very interesting. That makes me think of I'm, I'm a sort of golfer and I know you can do similar with that. And so I'm assuming very similar concepts that, yeah, when you see it and you slow it down, it's like, oh, <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot of things that can be tweaked and, and made better. So that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and so like I mentioned, we, we hit nutrition um, when we touched base prior to recording our episode, just high level, what are the guidelines that you give to your clients as far as, hey, don't do these things to completely erase your workout, let's say, uh, whether it's it's eating or even just rest in general? So I think that there's there are so many trends out there right now for eating. Um, and I think a lot of them are very confusing and difficult to put into play in real life. Um, so what I recommend is, you know, if you're working out for two hours of the day, you have another 22 hours in your day that you need to be mindful of what you're eating or what you're, you know, putting into your body. Um, I think trying to eat a lot of fruits, a lot of vegetables, um, for women, especially making sure that they get enough protein because a lot of women don't, um, those are really important considerations. You don't have to make it overly complicated. You've got to keep it as simple as possible. So that makes sense to keep it simple. And of course, the protein uh, is something you always want to focus on for whenever you're training for something as um, you know, intense as a triathlon. So keep, keep it simple. Does that mean you know fruits, veggies, stay away from highly processed foods, uh, obviously, and the proteins? Uh, what, what does that mean to you? Um, keeping it simple to me really means like eating a balanced meal, you know, you have your carbohydrates, your protein, your veggies, eating some fruits. Um, it's really all the stuff you learned in grade school about eating well. 
um, those still apply. It's just we all seem to have forgotten them or we've made it really complicated. Yeah. Um, I know I've seen a number of documentaries that talk about, again, like the processed foods, but they never quite get to what you should be doing. And again, it would be nice to even have just a roadmap in keeping it just here's the things to eat. Here's the things to avoid. Here's sort of the, you know, snuck in sugar or uh, complex carbohydrates, stuff like that. Um, so sometimes it can get a little bit complicated. And what's your take on like the power bars or things like that? Um, I know obviously during races, you're eating significant things, let's say well, that people wouldn't necessarily associate with exercise. Um, but even in between, do you, do you subscribe to again, like power bars or other types of supplement type of food like that? No, I don't. It's not something that I choose to eat. I don't really like the way they taste. Um, most of them, I mean, I've got to be starving to take a bite of a power bar or any bar in general. Um, I'm more likely to eat a banana or eat an apple. And again, that kind of goes back to keeping it simple, um, eating real food, eating food that either, you know, grows on a tree, comes out of the ground or comes from an animal. Um, you know, I just try to keep it simple, even with my nutrition in between workouts during races, um, I get a lot of my calories from sports drink. Um, they're specially mixed sports drinks uh, that you can have custom made for you with a certain amount of sodium in them to kind of support, you know, if you're a heavy sweater or not. Um, and then since I'm a woman, I can tolerate about 250 calories per hour. Um, much more than that, I'm not really going to be able to digest. That's kind of on the high side. I had to learn to be able to take that much in. Um, everybody's different. You, you can't really generalize when it comes to what you're taking in during a race. But when I'm not racing, when I'm on bike rides, um, you know, long rides in general, typically I'm going to take a peanut butter and jelly sandwich with me. Um, I might eat a banana along the way. And if there's a bakery, I'm going to stop and treat myself maybe to like a granola, you know, like some natural granola or something that's homemade. And is that similar for race day? Is that the similar types of things that you would either stop and eat? And I'm not really sure if it's similar to, again, like running where there's stations for water and then you'll hit some that have the gel packs or something like that. Is it similar for the longer races? And do you eat similar types of things on race day? Um, sometimes I will eat what they have on race day, but typically I'm going to try to stick with what I've been using in training. So halfway through an Ironman bike, I might have a half of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Um, I like Rice Krispie treats because they're really, I love them. I don't eat them that often, but on race day, it's a really nice treat. Um, I want to eat it. And because you might not necessarily feel like eating during a race, it's really important to have something that you like a lot so that when you get to it, you're going to be like, oh, I'm going to eat that. Yeah. Um, my nutrition on race day isn't necessarily as clean as what it is on a day-to-day -day basis, but um, I also like uh, pinwheels. They're like little, you know, danishes almost. Mm -hmm. A lot of times I'll eat one or two of those during a race because they taste good and I like them. So I'll eat them. Um, you just need calories in. you need stuff that's really easy to digest. Um, and so that's where I, 
I kind of get away from my healthy everyday eating. Well, that's that's one of the fringe benefits I would imagine is being able to eat pretty much whatever you want within somewhat reason. But yeah, when you're doing something that strenuous, uh, you, I assume some of the limitations in your everyday diet go away. So like you said, that sugar shot or something like that, especially while you're in the middle of it, um, is not only reasonable, maybe something to look forward to while you're right. going from station to station. But also things that are easy on your stomach and really easy to mm -hmm. digest. One thing that I will eat sometimes when I'm training and doing really long training runs is I eat um, either sweet potatoes or just regular boiled potatoes um, rolled in sea salt. And like for the sweet potatoes, I'll just roast them in slices and I'll carry slices in a little plastic bag with me. Um, it's really great nutrition and it's all natural. It gives you everything you need. And do you recommend typically for your clients to meet with a nutritionist? Um, or I'm sure, again, it depends on where they're coming from, what their habits happen to be. But um, generally speaking, do you find that it's a big help for folks or kind of supplemental to the overall training? I honestly can't say that I've seen a huge um, benefit in that. And maybe it's just because I haven't found the right dietitians to work with yet. But in general, um, you know, I think it can be helpful if people have really, like they have restrictions in their diet. But most people, if they clean up their diet and they're getting enough calories and fluids in during training and racing, then they're going to be fine. Uh, maybe I'll hit you up later for uh, if you find a specific nutritionist to work with, because uh, I know at least for the podcast, I'd love to round out some of my health and fitness uh, episodes and just the content that we have based on uh, certain restrictions or certain recommendations from a nutritionist. I do so. have someone who I would recommend, so I will okay. I will tell you that uh, offline. Perfect. That sounds great. Well, I think that's really all the questions that I had. There was one other that I looked back at my notes and I realized I skipped. This is back to the biking section. And of course, I feel like for running and biking, ideally you're outside in the elements just like you would be for race day. But that's not always going to be the case, especially when the winter months come. And for running, of course, it's a treadmill, presumably, that you're using indoors. But I know for the bikes, uh, most people think of a stationary bike, but there's also, I believe, that are called bike trainers but that you hook the uh, back of your bike to so that it's stationary. And then that way, I guess you're, you're getting some of the feel of your own bike. Do you have a recommendation on the bike trainer versus the stationary bike? And again, any recommendations for a particular brand or, or one that, that's your go-to? Um, I really stay away from the stationary bikes in the gym because unless you have no other options, it just puts you in a very different position than your real bike. Um, I always recommend using a trainer instead of a stationary bike. Um, I like the Oahu Direct Drive um, it's called the Wahoo Kicker. And basically what this is, is you remove your rear wheel, you attach your bike onto the cassette that's actually on the trainer. And this is a smart trainer, which means it will connect to your computer. And then you can download workouts or ride on a, an app called Zwift. And uh, it, it kind of drives your trainer. So it gives you the feel of riding outside. It makes you work really hard. It gives you power output. Um, it is, 
it is as close to riding outside as you're going to get. Um, but it's very beneficial. Yeah. Which makes sense to me. I mean, you know, my bike, I've gotten very used to, so there's something nice about being able to just use that indoors or outdoors. So, um, something I may be looking into for sure. Um, well, like I said, I think that's really all the questions that I had, unless anything has come to mind that I didn't ask or we didn't cover. Um, for anybody that would want to get a hold of you for just general questions, kind of like I've been asking, or if they happen to be in your area, um, do you want to offer any contact information or other sources? Sure. I mean, you can, I'm on Instagram as TriCoachKatie. I'm on Facebook just as Katie Malone or Malone Coaching. And then also I have a website. It's MaloneCoaching.com. And I imagine, again, even going back to the community we were talking about, if somebody's not in your area, seems like a pretty tight-knit group. You probably know a lot of different training companies in different areas. So even if it's somebody that you couldn't physically see, you probably would be a good resource to point somebody in the right direction. Definitely, definitely. And you're up in Virginia, correct? That's right. Because my coach actually... the the gentleman that coaches me, he lives in Blacksburg. So it's kind of a small world. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's not too far. So, uh, <laughs> who knows once I get a little further in my journey, maybe I'll uh, do a little, little bit of networking there. And one more time, Katie, I appreciate you coming on and we will talk later. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be notified of future weekly shows, please hit the subscribe button. Thank you.